The first reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 27, and can be found on page 170 at the back of the Church Bibles. One body with many members. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot were to say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear were to say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body that we think are less honourable, we clothe with greater honour. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honour to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for our Gospel reading, which is taken from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, on page 45 of the Bible. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. The request of James and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not, do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I, I drink or be baptised with the baptis, baptism that I am baptised with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, will be, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptised, you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand, or on my left, is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them, 
and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so amongst you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the Gospel of the Lord. May thoughts and words be to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Do please be seated. Society has always had a lot to say about ambition. Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor in the second century, said, A man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. Twenty centuries later, a modern philosopher said, Women who seek to be equal with men lack ambition. It's all about perspectives, isn't it? And today, the Steve Jobs and Elon Musks and Alan Sugars of this world try to encourage everyone to higher and higher levels of ambition, even if it means trampling over others on the way. Echoing our epistle reading, we read in the Gospel of two of Jesus' closest disciples being ambitious as they request to sit at Christ's side in his kingdom. In Mark's Gospel, it's James and John who actually come to Jesus with this request. In Matthew's Gospel, it's their mother. Jewish mothers are famous for their ambitions for their sons. I know, I am one. The disciples were still thinking of things in terms of personal prominence and personal reward and distinction. And they were thinking of personal success without personal sacrifice. This was the way of the world then, and it still is today. They wanted Jesus with a royal command and a wave of his hand to ensure for them a princely life. Everyone has to learn that true greatness lies not in dominance, but in service. And everyone has to learn that in every sphere of life, the price of greatness must be paid for. That's the negative side for the disciples in this story. But there is much more on the positive side. There is no incident which so demonstrates their invincible faith in Jesus. Think of when this request was made. It was made after a series of announcements by Jesus that ahead of him there lay an inescapable cross. It was made at a moment when the air was heavy with the atmosphere of tragedy and the sense of foreboding. And yet... In spite of all that, the disciples are thinking of a kingdom. Jesus had, of course, talked much about the kingdom. It's of immense significance to see that, even in a world in which the dark was descending, the disciples were incapable of thinking of Jesus in terms of ultimate defeat. Such was their faith. Somehow, 
when everything seemed to deny it and to prove it impossible, they would not abandon the conviction that the victory belonged to, to this Jesus. And ultimately, they were right. In Christian faith, there must always be this invincible and eternal optimism in the moment when all things are conspiring to drive you, me, to despair. And still further, here is, here is demonstrated the unshakable loyalty of the disciples, even when they were bluntly told that there lay ahead a bitter cup. It never struck them to turn back. They were determined to drink of it. If to conquer with Christ meant to suffer with Christ, they were perfectly willing to face that suffering, and most of them would. It's easy to condemn them and say they were being ambitious, but the faith and the loyalty which lay behind their ambition must never be forgotten. This passage has a message for us, and it's all about the Christian life. Jesus said that those who would share his triumph must drink his cup. But what is this cup? In this instance, it was to James and to John that Jesus spoke, and life treated James and John very differently. James was the first of the apostles to die a martyr's death at the hands of King Herod. You can read about it in Acts 12. For him, the cup was martyrdom. On the other hand, by far the greatest weight of tradition goes to show that John lived on to a great old age and died a natural death. For him, the cup was the constant discipline and struggle of the Christian life throughout the years. It's quite wrong to think that for the Christian, the cup must always mean the short, sharp, bitter, agonizing struggle of martyrdom. The cup may well be the long routine of the Christian life, with all its daily sacrifice, its daily struggle, and its heartbreaks, and its disappointment, and its tears. The Christian understanding of authentic faith has no place for a cure of every illness or a removal of all suffering but rather the strength to endure a Roman coin was once found with the picture of an ox on it the ox was facing two things an altar and a plough and the inscription simply read ready for the ox had to be ready either for the supreme moment of sacrifice on the altar or the long labor of the plow on the farm. It's an interesting observation, isn't it? There is no one cup for the Christian to drink. The cup may be drunk in one great moment. The cup may be drunk throughout a lifetime of Christian living. To drink the cup simply means to follow Christ wherever Christ may lead. And so to be like Christ in any situation that life may bring. 
Do you remember when James and John were first called? All they heard from Jesus was, follow me. They didn't know where to or where it would all end. This short passage shows us Jesus' reaction, his kindness. The amazing thing about Jesus is that he never lost his patience and became irritated with those who came to him. In spite of all he has said, here were these two men and their mother still chattering about posts in an earthly government and kingdom. But Jesus doesn't explode at their obtuseness or blaze at their blindness or despair at their lack of understanding. In gentleness, in sympathy and in love, with never an impatient word, Jesus seeks to lead them to the truth. The most amazing thing about our Lord is that he never despaired of those he met. He still doesn't. It shows us Jesus' honesty. He was quite clear that there was a bitter cup to be drunk and that he didn't hesitate to say so. No one can ever claim that they began to follow Jesus under false pretenses. Jesus never failed to tell them the truth that even if life ends in a crown, the road to life itself is to carry a cross. It shows us Jesus' trust and faith in his followers. Jesus never doubted that James and John would maintain their loyalty. They had their mistaken ambitions. They had their blindness. They had their wrong ideas. They were human. Jesus never dreamed of writing them off like bad debts. He believed that they could and would drink the cup and that in the end they would still be found at his side. So today we see two of Jesus' closest disciples being ambitious, the request to sit at Christ's side in his kingdom. But Jesus sees deeper into their hearts and sees their faith and loyalty to follow him wherever that might lead to drink his cup. Whilst the disciples would have remembered those words from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that God has set eternity in our hearts, they wouldn't know that St. Augustine would observe that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Or that St. Paul would write to the Philippian church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. That is the way we as Christians are called to be in fellowship with one another in the life of our church. Soren Kierkegaard, a great Danish theologian who died in 1855, said this. It's very provocative. He said, there are two types of Christian, those who imitate Christ, and a second, much cheaper brand, those who are content to admire him. 
for us, we see the pattern of the Christian life that indeed we do have a cup to drink, a life to lead as one of Christ's present-day disciples. That road may well be hard. We will fall, even fail at times, but Jesus will be there. He has faith in us that we will come through. One of the great fundamental facts to which we must hold on to, even perhaps when we hate and loathe and despise ourselves, is that Jesus Christ still believes in us. And above all, he will never desert us in whatever situation we may find ourselves. As we share again in bread and wine to remember him, let us again commit ourselves to being in fellowship with one another and to follow the Master wherever it may lead. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.